This is Ron Stockton. I want to tell you three entertaining Catholic stories. Well, two are entertaining. I'm not sure that the third is entertaining at all. The first is about Pope Joan, the only female pope. What? Did I hear you say that you've never heard of Pope Joan? Did you say that a woman can't be pope? Well, you're welcome to listen to the story. The second story is the one that may be distressing to some people. It is the discussion of the film Spotlight. This was an award-winning film about an investigation by the Boston Globe into child sexual abuse by priests and how the archdiocese covered it up. It was headline news at the time, and the film is absolutely gripping. If you haven't seen it, you should do so as soon as possible. It won all sorts of awards. The third story is the one that may surprise you the most. If you are unaware of a female pope, you may be especially surprised to learn that I myself was once a candidate for pope. Some people even say that I was elected, although the church denies there was ever such a candidate. If you can struggle through the anguish of spotlight, this story may lighten your day a bit. It took place back in 2013, when Pope Francis I was ultimately chosen. But let's not get ahead of the story. Let's start with what is often called the legend of Pope Joan. According to this legend, Joan ruled for a short time in the mid-800s. She was said to be a German girl who was very intelligent and who disguised herself as a boy so she could study. She studied Greek and Latin in a monastery in Mainz, Germany, founded by English monks. She fell in love with a monk and followed him to Athens disguised as John Angelicus, i.e. John the Englishman. Working in the Vatican, she rose through the ranks and was chosen Pope around 855. She reigned for either a few weeks or two years as Pope John VIII. During a papal procession on the way to the Church of the Lateran, she began to have contractions and delivered a son in public. Can you believe that? Either she was killed that very day or confined for a lengthy penance. Her son either died or became a bishop and buried her with honor in his cathedral. The street was renamed Vicus Papisa, Street of the Female Pope, and has never since been used by popes. To prevent such a thing from ever happening again, subsequent popes sat in a special open-bottomed chair upon their election and were subjected to a testicle test. The cardinal will announce duos habit et bene pendentes. He has two and they dangle nicely. Or habit. He has them for short. Of course, Rome has an answer to each and every one of these so-called facts. And of course, there is a conspiracy theory that the church knows that there was truly a female pope and has deleted all references to her and denied her existence to protect their patriarchal structure. And yet, those, those who believe in the existence of Pope Joan note that there are over 500 references to her in different chronicles. There are many paintings of her, and the Siena Cathedral had her bust on display until the late 1500s. Alas, none of this evidence appeared before a chronicle of 1250, 
perhaps 400 years after the events. Still, the legend was widely accepted until the 1500s. A very influential narrative was by Martin of Opava. Let me read an excerpt for you. John Angelicus, born in Mainz, was pope for two years, seven months, and four days, and died in Rome, after which there was a vacancy in the papacy of one month. It is claimed that this Joan was a woman, who, as a girl, had been led to Athens dressed in the clothes of a man by a certain lover of hers. There she became proficient in a diversity of branches of knowledge until she had no equal, and afterwards, in Rome, she taught the liberal arts and had great masters among her students and audience. A high opinion of her life and learning arose in the city, and she was chosen for Pope. While Pope, however, she became pregnant by her companion. Through ignorance of the exact time when the birth was expected, she was delivered of a child while in procession from St. Peter's to the Lateran in a lane once named Via Sacra, the Sacred Way, but now known as the Shunned Street, between the Colosseum and St. Clement's Church. After her death, it is said she was buried in that same place. The Lord Pope always turns aside from the street, and it is believed by many that this is done because of abhorrence of that event. Nor is she placed on the list of the holy pontiffs, both because of her female sex and on account of the foulness of the matter. A diary in 1406 reported that the current Pope had been subjected to the testicle test. There was a film made in English in 1972 of this legend. It is called Pope Joan. There are also two modern books on the subject. One is a novel. The other is an attempt to explore the evidence. Peter Stanford, The Legend of Pope Joan, In Search of the Truth, published in 2000, concludes that, weighing all the evidence, I am convinced that Pope Joan was a historical figure, though perhaps not all the details about her have been passed on down the centuries are true. I have read this book, and it seems well done. However fascinating as the story is, professional historians are unanimous in saying that Pope Joan is a myth. I have also read the novel by Donna uh, Wolfolk Cross, likewise called Pope Joan, which I liked as well. I haven't seen the movie. Now, story number two regarding the film Spotlight. I can't tell if this section should be subtitled Exposing the Church or Rescuing the Church, but probably both. Spotlight was released in 2015. It focused upon the child sexual abuse scandals that shook the Catholic Church. It became an instant classic in the tradition of all the president's men. It got six Academy Award nominations and won the Best Picture Award. The film takes its name from the five-person investigation unit within the Boston Globe. They do in-depth investigations, often spending a year on a topic. Around 2000, they began to investigate child sexual abuse within the church. 
They started with one priest who had over 80 victims. How could one priest have 80 victims? Someone must have known. Soon they knew of a dozen or so abusive priests. Then they discovered someone who had worked with such priests and had been studying the subject for 30 years. He had a predictive model that suggested there were 90 abusers within Boston alone. When the spotlight team came up with 87 names, they were ready to run the story. But in the past, the church had weaseled out of cases by suggesting that these were one-off situations by abusive individuals. The team decided the institution itself must be involved in a conspiracy before, during, and after the felony of child rape. Increasingly, the evidence pointed to the very top, Cardinal Law himself. In the end, they found over 250 priests and close to 1,000 abused children. These boys, mostly, had certain characteristics. Working class background, broken family, absent fathers. They grew up in religious families that respected the church and trusted a priest who went out of his way to work with difficult boys lacking a proper male role model. The church had a formula for how they handled such problems. The bishop would talk to the family, apologize, and promise this would never happen again. An attorney would go in with a cash settlement. The priest would be put on health leave, put that in quotes, or some other administrative removal. They would be sent to a treatment center, put that in quotes, where a church therapist would work with them. The priest would acknowledge their offenses, express regret, ask for forgiveness, and be reassigned to another congregation. These individuals became serial offenders. While other priests stayed in a congregation for eight or so years, these moved every two years. Cardinal Law was a key player in this violence. But there were a host of others driven by a desire to protect the church. And here's a dispute. Does the church, we'll put that in quotes, mean the hierarchy of priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and the pope, or does it mean the people of God? As Vatican II said, clearly Cardinal Law and his response team of therapists, lawyers, and community allies thought in terms of the organization. They were willing to sacrifice those children to protect the church. Two scenes are particularly poignant. In one, someone says, if it takes a village to raise a child, it also takes a village to abuse one. That was shocking. It implicated scores of good people whose offense was to look away. The second scene involves a reporter played by Mark Ruffalo. He says, when I was a boy, I liked the church. I had moved away from it, but I always hoped I could go back someday. Now I realize I can never go back. Abuse, as someone points out, has two dimensions, physical and spiritual. You are not only assaulting the body of a child, you are also destroying that child's humanity. And faith is being assaulted. Back in 2000, I wrote a book on church conflict. It involved a congregation with a malfunctioning pastor. There was no exchange of fluids in that case, just abuses of power and boundary violations. The leadership, regional and congregational, 
decided for whatever reason to work with the pastor. In the end, the congregation suffered serious harm. I wrote at the time that there were two ways to bring such a leadership under control. One was through civil lawsuits that would force the leadership to recognize that they were going to have to pay for their failures. The other was to charge someone with crimes. These steps would clear the sinuses, so to speak. When I wrote that book, I noted that the Catholic Church had already paid out over half a billion dollars in settlements because of their failure to deal with these abusive priests. As of today, the total is over $3 billion. There have been approximately 3,000 lawsuits, and heaven knows how many private settlements. Eight dioceses have declared bankruptcy. Others have filed for bankruptcy protection. Boston was truly the heart of darkness, but other places were equally pervasive. Los Angeles paid $660 million to 500 victims. San Diego paid $198 million to 144 victims. Portland paid $75 million to 177 victims. As someone said of the abuse cover-up abuse syndrome, it, this became a racket. I left this feeling with feelings I could not quite put into words. You feel exhilarated that the Spotlight team was able to resist all the pressure they were under, all the efforts at a cover-up, even concerns higher-up had within their organization. Question from a high official, from a high uh, newspaper official. 53% of our readers are Catholics. How will they react to this? Answer, I think they will be interested. Whoa, talk about an understatement. It was also as if justice had been done. What those victim, victims wanted was to have the truth known. One person discussing ex his experience with the reporter is distressed and humiliated and embarrassed. He tells the reporter he wants his name kept quiet. He says he has a small child. He has never even told his wife about what happened. As he walks out of the interview, he comes back into the room and he says, Use my name. Get those sons of bitches. Recently, I saw a wonderful German film that dealt with some of the same issues. It was called Labyrinth of Lies. It was about the Auschwitz trials of 1967. There had been Nuremberg trials after the war, but those focused on top officials. These trials dealt with, with second echelon of offenders, your neighbors. The logic of the cover-up was the same. This happened. It was war. People did what they did. This is never going to happen again. They will have to live with what they did. Isn't that punishment enough? Why not let them get on with their lives? Again, the key figure was a local prosecutor who decided to open an investigation and pursue it in the face of almost universal resistance. At one point near the end, the junior prosecutor is discouraged. He says that only a handful of people are going to be prosecuted. Many offenders will never be brought to trial, and some may actually escape conviction. His colleague says he has completely misunderstood the purpose of the trials. The victory is not in getting convictions. It is in calling hundreds of victims to the stand and having them tell their stories. That is the victory. Then people know and can no longer deny what happened. Spotlight ends before the grand jury opened its investigation. 
The local prosecutor, a good Irish Catholic lad, decides to have Cardinal Law's testimony go on record. For nearly a week, the Cardinal was asked about memos he received, warnings he had, priests he had passed on to other places. The transcript of that testimony was published verbatim by the Boston Globe. I read it almost every day. After several days, the church petitioned to have the testimony continue out of the public eye, but the damage was done. Cardinal Law, considered the most powerful political figure in the state of Massachusetts, had been exposed for what he was, a collaborator in child sexual abuse. He was one step ahead of indictment when he abruptly resigned his position as Archbishop of Boston and was called to Rome by Pope John II. He was made the head of Santa Maria Maggiore, one of the most magnificent of the churches in a city with many magnificent churches. When John Paul died and the cardinals assembled to elect a new pope, Cardinal Ratzinger, soon to be Richard Benedict the Sixteenth, put him in charge of presiding at the mass for the arriving cardinals. He was given a unique honor of bringing the cardinals closer to God. The Vatican has praised the film for raising important issues. Okay, here's story three. I'll call it Ron for Pope. It was my grab for glory. Now for the grand finale of these three stories. This one has to do with the fact that I was a candidate for Pope back in March of 2013. You may remember that Cardinal Ratzinger, the hardline ex-professor who was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, formerly known as the Inquisition, was Pope at the time. In 2013, he realized he had failed and did something that no Pope had ever done for centuries. He stepped down and went off to his retirement home near Rome. What is less known is the story of my candidacy. Let me just read to you what I wrote back in the day. This was before the conclave. The papal electoral college pushed me aside and ultimately chose Pope Francis. Here we go. I've been watching the coming train wreck known as the conclave and have realized that detached analysis is not enough. I've decided to throw my hat into the ring. I know this will come as a shock to many of you. Some may even think it is a joke. My advisors are unanimously opposed. They say I start with so many serious disadvantages that I don't stand a chance. Not a single cardinal will vote for me. And of course they're right. But in this complex world, we do the best we can and hope it will work out. But let's stipulate that stipulate that the disadvantages of my candidacy are major ones. First, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but then neither was Peter the first pope. He was a Jew. Moreover, Vatican II defined the church as the people of God. I'll put that in quotes because it's a direct quote. So perhaps I'm a part of that church. Second, I'm married, but then so was Peter the first pope. Check Matthew 8:14 if you're unsure on this point. And according to Catholic teaching, Jesus personally designated him as his successor. Again, see Matthew 16:18. Perhaps that note will not be as much of an impediment as some might think. Third, I do not accept some Catholic teachings, such as papal infallibility. 
The hundreds of millions of Catholics are fed up with the Pope with his imperial pretensions. Perhaps someone who said he was definitely not infallible would be a refreshing change. Now, the top 10 reasons why I should be Pope. First, I like women. I don't mean women in the abstract, those on the pedestals, but real life breathing women, women like my wife and granddaughters and daughters-in-law. That alone would distinguish me from about two-thirds of the cardinals. Second, I have a traditional hillbilly worldview. That means that if some bishop tried to cover up child abuse, I would probably get on a plane, fly to that bishop's office, and beat him over the head with my papal scepter before stripping him of his position and turning him over to the police for prosecution. Consistent with the standards defined in the Catechism, 1440 to 1460, we can forgive him after he has acknowledged his sins, made restitution, and done penance, i.e. served his term. A lot of Catholics would cheer for such a pope. Third, I don't speak Italian. Some might see this as a disadvantage, but it means I would not have to talk to many cardinals except through an interpreter. To me, that's a bonus. Fourth, my encyclicals would be along the lines of my Facebook blogs. Benedict tried to fuse reason with theology, a goal worthy of praise, but his encyclicals were so obtuse that few people could understand what he was trying to say. Those who have read my Facebook postings can confirm that I bring a lot of common sense reasoning to religious topics. So this may be one point on which Benedict and I are in agreement, at least in principle. The advantage of my postings is that they're readable. Theology professors such as Benedict may disagree, but I think that would be an improvement. Fifth, many of my friends and students who are estranged from the church might think my selection reflected a new trend and that religion was worth a second look. If I could bring even one person back into the church, that would be more than Benedict achieved. Sixth, there are currently five vacancies in the College of Cardinals. I would fill all of those vacancies with women. Two would be from orders, two would be lay people with non-religious careers, and one would be one of my former students. Uh, I already have a short list, by the way. Note, appointment to the College of Cardinals is a gift of honor by the Pope. Popes can appoint whomever they wish, and I would do so. Seventh, I would reveal a message from God that we should return to the custom of the early church when women could be priests and priests could marry. This would reverse the shortage of priests, stem the closing of churches, and revitalize the church as an institution. It would also bring a new humanistic perspective into the congregations. Eighth, I would reveal a message from God that the doctrine of infallibility was being infallibly revoked and that I would be the last pope with infallibility. Since the doctrine of infallibility has been a point of contention with Protestants, this would open up the possibility of ecumenical integration in a way that has been impossible in the past. When I appoint the Archbishop of Canterbury to the College of Cardinals, my sixth appointment, we will once again look at to the dream of Paul VI of reintegrating the Church of England into the universal Catholic Church. Ninth, to show that my papacy was well grounded in the traditions of the Church, I would consistently quote previous encyclicals such as Rerum Novarum, 1891, on a just wage, 
Populorum Progressio, 1861, on the international imperialism of money, and Vatican II, which affirmed that in a conflict between the rich and the poor, God always has a preferential option for the poor. On Holy Thursday, when the Pope traditionally washes the feet of a priest to show humility and respect, see Matthew 26, 14 to 39, I would wash the feet of the great theologian Hans Kung, who was stripped of the right to teach by former Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, a.k.a. Benedict XVI. Finally, Catholics around the world would be delighted by my papal title of Pope Ron I. Some would laugh out loud. And if there's anything that Catholics need these days, it is the ability to find something about their church to make them laugh. I have a postscript on this essay. After the results were announced, I posted the following. Organized religion is a speed bump on the road to faith. This is the only surviving quote from the short reign of Pope Ron I. All other records have been lost, including any and all information on the identity of Pope Ron. Church officials deny there was ever a pope by that name. Note also, although this posting received scores of encouraging comments and endorsements, my wife is the only person who was concerned. She asked whether she would have to give up winners in Arizona and move to Rome if I were elected. I told her we would work this out. Well, thank you for listening. I hope these stories have not compromised anyone's faith.